0: Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld.
1: Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture.
0: Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly whenever your case is on hold.
1: Welcome back for another exciting episode of Your Cases on Hold, episode number 36. We're here today for the June 21st, 2023 issue. I am Antonia Chen. I am a simple hip and knee surgeon, which is my go-to line, and I'm deputy editor of Adult Reconstruction, and with me here, I have...
0: I'm uh, Andrew Schoenfeld, deputy editor for Methods at the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Patients, if I have to wait a whole year, I'm going to tag you back.
1: (laughs) These opinions, as you can see, are clearly our own, do not reflect anyone else on the JBJS editorial board or anyone else in JBJS. This is brought to you by Clinical Classrooms. If you haven't checked it out, please do. Great information there. Don't take our word for information coming out of our mouths, but there's a lot more information that you can get from Clinical Classrooms. So without further ado, we'd like to jump into top of the pile. What's new in spine surgery? Heggelson and all is permanently free, gives you a nice update on spine surgery. Ortho, I Screwed Up by Perkle et al. It's permanently free.
0: That's an intriguing title.
1: Personal plug. Check it out because I confess a bad case in there, as do other people. So we have all screwed up. People don't always talking about screwing up. And I think for our mental health, we talked about this in the last episode. Mental health is important. Burnout happens. And we have to know that we are not alone in what we do. So go check that out. There must be a better way by Lever et al. And now to our Headlines. Take it away for us with the 10-year outcomes of second-generation all-inside meniscal repair in the setting of ACL reconstruction.
0: This article is by Wright and colleagues. There's a commentary, and it is free for 30 days, so uh, get into jbjs.org and check it out. This work uh, comes from Vanderbilt. This was a retrospective review of prospectively collected patients who underwent meniscal repair by a single surgeon using the all-inside fast-fix meniscal repair system, From Smith and Nephew in conjunction with uh, concurrent ACL reconstruction. So there were 81 meniscal repairs identified, uh, 59 medial and 22 lateral. They have 10-year follow-up, which is really outstanding for 85% of the cohort. So the the duration of follow-up is outstanding. The percentage of patients that they are including uh, is outstanding. And um, they're looking at clinical outcomes, including the COOs, the IKDC, and the Marks Activity Rating Scale scores. The long term follow up is really what's advantageous here because only in a setting like this, where there's stability of the practice and, and you have kind of a, a population that's going to keep coming back um, or come back at you know a long term follow up because of their relationship with the surgeon, can you get sort of these big picture. I've also, I've off oftentimes wondered myself about you know what that what what happens after the acl reconstruction right is it like you know 20 years down the road they're just going to be getting joint replacements when i was in training and you're a bit younger than me but when you were in training too like you're not seeing people who have the current generation of acl techniques you're seeing people who maybe blew out their acl and never had anything never had a treatment so you know what what uh, are the the advantages of the the current reconstructions outside of getting someone back to the soccer pitch or the basketball court? And and so at a minimum of ten years, eighty four to eighty eight percent of the patients continue to have successful repair, which is really outstanding. Medial mis- meniscal repairs uh, failures occurred significantly earlier. I think that's that's uh, expected, and and um, that's so expected that it shows up on the OITE all the time. This is level four evidence, of course. You know, I think it's like we've said before. When you've been at it this long, it looks like it's magic. Um, uh, there's, you know, a concern for an expertise bias and a cluster bias. This may not be translational to other practices, but certainly, if we consider it an idealized outcome, the best possible outcome, we can really see what these types of surgical techniques and advancements can do for patients. I think that's really fantastic.
1: And add more to that. Rarely do we get high praise from you. So this is the high five. Everyone go read that article.
0: I praise all the time, throwing out high praise. Listen to the last episode. It was all high praise.
1: <laughs> Lots of high praises all around. All right, then. Well, I'm going to talk about a different topic. And there's praises here to be had for pain relief after total knee replaced arthroplasty with intravenous and periarticular corticosteroid, a randomized controlled trial by Chan et al. And there's also a commentary as this. So as you can guess, I selected an article on total knee arthroplasty surprise. This is a, is that a bingo? Take it off the
0: bingo card.
1: There we go. <laughs> so this is the randomized double-blinded clinical trial of 178 patients who underwent primary unilateral uh, total arthroplasty from a hospital in Hong Kong. And as always, we commend prospective randomized controlled trials as they're very difficult to conduct and they're very time consuming. So we commend the authors on doing that. They were randomized one to one to one to one. So these were the four groups. So truly being a um, placebo controlled trial. So there's a placebo group. The other group got intravenous corticosteroids. The other group got, so the placebo group got four milliliters of intravenous saline. They did get an intra-articular injection. So it wasn't that these patients got nothing at all. So they had intravenous saline. So saline, as we know, is a true placebo. But they did get this uh, standard injection of uh, 40 milligrams of ropivacaine, of 0.75% ropivacaine, 0.5 milliliters of 1 to 200,000 of adrenaline, and 30 milligrams of ketorolac in 60 milliliters of saline. So the patients did get something in the placebo group. It just had no steroids in it. The uh, second group was the IV group, and they got 16 milligrams of intravenous dexamethasome and the standard injection around without a cortisone injection. In the uh, periarticular steroid group, they got, a stero- they, got, sorry, they got saline as their injection uh, intravenously, but they had the standard uh, periarticular injection plus 40 milligrams of triamcinolone, which we typically do when we're doing a cortisone injection into the knee. And then patients in the final group had the combination of the intravenous dexamethasone, which is 16 milligrams, and the standard in periarticular injection plus one milliliter of 40 milligrams of triamcinolone. So those are the four groups that you had there and their sample size says that they wanted to see a difference of the mean pain score during maximal action flexion, they said it was 5.0. They said they need a sample size of 43 patients per group to detect a minimally clinical difference of 2.0 among the two treatment groups at 80% power at the 5% significance Mm -hmm. level. So they did achieve their their sample size, but the real question is the whole difference in the minimally clinical important difference, which was 2.0 as their threshold for determining that. So what they did is they looked at a bunch of baseline variables um, and then these are all measured by a physiotherapist the day before surgery. And they did look at blood glucose prior to surgery and they looked at post-operative pain control. Now, interestingly enough, the authors used uh, patient-controlled anesthesia using morphine, which is administered for at least three days. That is not the standard of care, I would say, in most facilities in the United States now. So this is a unique scenario. One, they were able to measure patients the day before surgery. So patients are probably coming in the day before surgery, and then staying past the 24 hours that patients typically stay here for total joint replacements. And the first three days were administering this patient-controlled anesthesia, which requires a pump and you have to be the hospital for that. And they had a standard multimodal analgesic regimen with pregabalin, paracetamol, uh, celecoxib for five days after surgery. So the biggest comparison was, um, placebo versus the group that got both the intravenous steroids and the periarticular steroids and intravenous steroids. So the intravenous steroids and the um, intravenous plus periarticular steroids probably did the best. They were best with pain at rest, pain during maximal active flexion, quality recovery questionnaire, quad power, and uh, walking distance. All three groups had lower morphine use than placebo And just specifically the group that got intravenous steroids and the periarticular injection had better elderly mobility scale score and higher discharges home. That said, which is probably not surprising, the groups that got the intravenous steroids had the highest glucose levels. And that was in both groups that that received the 16 milligrams of dexamethasone. Um, They said there were no surgical site infections or periparstetic joint infections in the first 12 months of follow-up, which is pretty impressive. Dr. Ronawat had done previous studies where he added cortisone to his cocktail to try to reduce inflammation in the post-operative period, but found that he had to add antibiotics because his uh, infection rate went up. Um, this is kind of similar and akin to the, the topic they we were talking about before, where we're talking about cortisone injections from the last um, podcast and whether or not you use uh, cortisone injections and do you stop them before surgery, like three months, to reduce infection risk. So now you're injecting it at the time of surgery, which could affect infection risk. One of the things that the study doesn't incorporate are different levels of steroids, right? So 16 milligrams is pretty high when it comes to getting intravenous steroids. We typically give eight milligrams or 10 milligrams. So 16 is a lot more, but it is given information. It's possible that you can use less steroids in patients with the same effect. And my take home from this is personally, is I, I stick to IV steroids as opposed to putting IV as well as periarticular steroids, even if it does affect things like the Elderly mobility scale and home discharge.
0: Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. I think you you hit all the the most important points. It's level one study for what they were investigating, but you have to take into account, you know, how they powered it and then decide if that power is is relevant. Uh, but we like to see level one work. Tremendous amount of work that goes into it. So I congratulate them uh, on that effort. Ready to go into the your cases on hold pot, uh, featurette. Tell me more about the cases on hold. You know, so many people say, you know, they'll 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 say like, you know, where'd you get the idea from or or, you know, the ending when you like like, you know, take the show out like it sounds like part of the interruption from from ESPN. And it's like, oh, you're so perceptive. You're so perceptive. Yeah. I, I mean, this started the whole idea. We used to do the toss up section. We had all the sections just like part of the interruption. So part of the interruption, your case is on hold. Uh, hats off to. Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon have us on PTI like we could, or they could come on the show. Right. That would be amazing. I, mean, I, think, I think our show has about as many um, listener viewers as theirs does probably uh, give or take. Anyhow, this but is uh,
1: a deviation at this yeah, yeah, editor.
0: Yeah. year survivorship and patient satisfaction following robotic arm assisted medial unicompartmental knee arthroplasty, a prospective multicenter study by, by Yumi and colleagues. There is an infographic, so do check that out. This is from HSS uh, Prospective Study. So it includes other centers, but the, the main author team, I believe is from HSS. 474 consecutive patients, 531 knees, undergoing robotic arm assisted medial UKA. All right, so we've got these several hospitals contributing. They wanna look at these outcomes. Data were analyzed for 366 patients. 411 knees, mean follow-up of 10.2 years. So this is like, this is the decade long follow-up issue of JBJS, because we had that on the previous sports one from Vanderbilt. Now we got one in joints. In that time window though, you only had 29 revisions. So about 92% 10 year survivorship. And of all those revisions, 26 were revised to total knee. And then, so there are three remainder that were, were not probably not surprising, unexplained pain and aseptic loosening were the most common reported modes of failure. And then of patients without revision, 91% were either satisfied or very satisfied with their overall knee function. They do a regression analysis. It showed a significantly higher risk of all-cause revision with a hazard of 23 and conversion to total knee, also same hazard, 2.3, among female patients compared to males. But I think when you look at this, there are probably some issues with the sample there, and that speaks to the fact that the outcome of interest, there's only 29 individuals with the outcome of interest. So that's a pretty small population that may restrict some clinical variation. Both the confidence intervals are fairly wide, a five-fold difference between the lower and upper bound and the lower bound on the conversion of TKA includes 1.0. So even with the p-value that does show significance, that would be a questionable finding. My real you know, sort of controversy here, and uh, as many may be aware from listening to prior episodes, uh, I do have an interest in uh, some of my research looks at CT navigation, robotics in spine surgery. We know the robot is expensive, it's a huge capital investment. We know uh, it uses uh, a lot of um, disposables that has both an added cost to the surgery, and then there's also an environmental impact from that as well. Some things that we've talked about in previous episodes. So when I hear of the patients who did not have a revision, ninety one percent were satisfied. Is is that really that good? Like, is that that good? Like ninety one percent? Like. So, you know, about 10% of patients were still dissatisfied, even though they didn't have, you know, the outcome. And probably more importantly than that part, more importantly than that is, is it worth it with the robot when we're still talking about robotic surgery and the costs that go with it with that? Is it worth it for it to just be 91% satisfaction?
1: that's a good question. If you look at total knee replacements, they're saying 20% are dissatisfied. Now, technically then in their survey, because it was a Likert scale, 4% were dissatisfied or very dissatisfied. So there were a group in there that were neutral as opposed to satisfied or dissatisfied. So 4% is not, you know, a lot, but it is a good question. You know, this is a single robotic system. This is a single procedure and a single implant. So that also adds more complexity to it, because is it worth using this exact implant? And will you get those results? So I guess the real question is, if you compared it to another group, you know, if the manual instrument said, okay, it only had 80% satisfaction, and you use a robotic and you get 91% satisfaction, then that 10 percentage points could make a difference. But that's to each surgeon, right? And each outcome in the variable the hands you're in. I would also say, too, that this is a very specific group of individuals. This These surgeons had annual case volumes ranging from 54 to 81 cases. So these are surgeons who are doing a lot of partial knee replacements. Is 91% a good enough number? It's a great question. If they were doing it manually and you were getting the exact same amount, then maybe that's a telling sign that maybe it's not necessarily the way to go. But I think the problem is uh, to find a surgeon group that's willing to randomize um, manual versus non-manual is small because most people stick adamantly to the style that they do something because they like how it works or they like the outcomes they get in their hands.
0: Yeah, I, I think that it's a good point you raise and, and another cautionary point because it's these are the best of the best. These are the people who have the highest volume for this. So if you're not doing high volume, it you might not even be at the 91% satisfaction rate.
1: And on top of interesting, those who respond might actually be happier, right? It it could also bias the other direction as well, too. But you know, the response rate can make a difference So there is a selection bias as well, too. And you know, just because a patient satisfaction is such a nuanced term, right? Maybe they're satisfied because they got free parking on the way into the hospital. So they're satisfied with it, you know, or they're satisfied because they can walk 10 feet, and someone's dissatisfied because they can't run the marathon that they wish they can run. So that's where functional assessments would also be really helpful to really encompass this entire project, and to show 10 year follow up, including functional assessments.
0: There's so much that goes into satisfaction, including pre-op expectations. What was the whole reason? Pain relief, residual pain. Did they have a complication? Can they walk as far or do as much as they wanted to? Do they think that, you know, the, what pain they experienced with the surgery and the rehabilitation afterward was worth it after the fact? So much goes into making a decision for that, that you know, just saying satisfied, dissatisfied, or very dissatisfied. I mean, there's so many fundamental underlying ideologies behind that, it's hard to unpack or even know.
1: And on top of it too, unexplained pain. That's also a difficult one to unpack, right? So, you know, revision rate is obviously something that we look at as a finite time point, but we also know that same thing too, is that we don't necessarily know that's a problem. So unexplained pain is a difficult one as well, too. So we won't put that case on hold because tenure follow-up is a great thing. So we encourage all of our listeners and all of our authors who are listening to this to continue following up your patients. The longer follow-up we have, the more detail we can get from things. So that's really important to do as well. Let's finish things up, things with the honorable mentions. So honorable mentions include long-term radiographic and pulmonary function outcomes after dual growing rod treatments for severe early onset scoliosis by Wang and all. There's a commentary and an infographic. The study shows that dual growing rods are effective in treating severe early onset scoliosis in the long-term. They allow for longitudinal growth of the spine and the correction of the spinal deformity can provide conditions that make improving pulmonary functions possible in patients with early, sorry, severe early onset scoliosis. So this is a change from my own residency where I didn't have this option. So this is really nice to see that these dual growing rods really actually help out our patients, especially with their pulmonary function accuracy evaluation of a novel spinal robotic system for autonomous laminectomy in the thoracic and lumbar vertebrae, a cadaveric study. This is by Lee et al. The accuracy of a robotic systems, and we talked about robotics in this session with partial knee replacements. This is looking at robotics in spine. This is specifically a cadaveric study where they had 40 vertebrae from four cadavers where seven thoracic and three lumbar vertebrae were randomly selected in each cadaver. And it does support the use for the use of a robot in the laminectomy Of thoracolumbar vertebrae. And so there is demonstrated accuracy in the robotic system in this cadaver system. Obviously, next steps would be to see this in the human setting. And then finally, the long-term risk of knee arthroplasty in patients with arthroscopically verified focal cartilage lesion, a linkage study with the Norwegian Arthroplasty Register, 1999 to 2022, uh, by Burkenes et al. And there's also a visual summary for this. Now, talking about long-term follow-up, 20-year cumulative risk of knee arthroplasty after a focal cartilage lesion in the knee was 19%. Deep lesions, higher age at the time of cartilage surgery, high BMI at the time of follow-up, ACI, and greater than one cartilage lesion were associated with a higher risk of knee arthroplasty. Otherwise, at 20 years, only a 19% rate of tenodal knee arthroplasty after a focal cartilage lesion is pretty good. I would take that to the bank. Thank you much for so much for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next time.